Well, good morning. My name is Joel. If we have not met, I am the community group's pastor here at Spring Branch. It's really good to be with you this morning. Thank you for braving the elements. I'm sure we'll all leave here and go home and winterize our pipes and uh, batten down the hatches for a couple of days. But we're here, and so I'm, I'm thankful to you guys. I'm thankful to y'all that are tuning in on the stream live that are making a point uh, this morning to turn our attention to God, what he has said in his word, what he is doing in our lives, and for that to spill over, to overflow to the lives of those around us. We're going to be in Nehemiah 6. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 6, um, while you're headed there, I have to admit to you, I am a self-proclaimed Marvel Cinematic Universe fanboy, okay? Where, where, are my, where are my WandaVision watchers at in the house? Oh, there's a lot. All right. Nice. I don't feel alone. Thank you guys for that so- show of support. Um, if you did not raise your hand, you're missing out, okay? I know it looks like, you know, uh, Bewitched, uh, I Love Lucy rehash, but uh, no spoilers, no spoilers in the sermon today, I promise. Um, but I, I, I want to talk about Marvel for a second, okay? Uh, maybe, you, maybe you think it has very little to do with the sermon by the time we're done, but I promise you it's not just a shameless way for me to, uh, you know, to articulate this, this little hobby of mine. I'm not as old school as some. I have two buddies that have like bookcases of comics, right? And so uh, Nick Charles, Drew Lyons, if you are watching this stream or listening at any point in time, I'm very grateful for your encyclopedic knowledge of the comic universe. I call them literally after every single uh, like major theatrical release just to figure out, okay, where were all the Easter eggs? What's going on? What's going to happen next? What can I expect from the next stage? <clears throat> but there's something that I want that there's something that fascinates me about superheroes and superhero movies. I want to ask like, what is it that is so fascinating for so many people? Like it, that Avengers movies make just, they just print money every time they come out, right? So what is it that draws us as a culture to superheroes and superhero movies? I want to suggest that at least one of the things that does that is this. They give us a lens uh, for thinking about our own brokenness, our own faults, our own frailties and shortcomings. We have this way in which um, to see kind of behind their mask and to think about ourselves in light of that, right? So they're, they're flawed. They're deeply flawed. Uh, I was going to say human beings, but I guess superhuman beings, whatever that, however that works. Their pain is being sorted out in their lives just on this cosmic epic scale. Um, and it's actually the distance, like the felt distance between our own scale of our own hurts and that cosmic scale of like Iron Man and Thor that allows us to sort of examine that without, you know, in a safer context, without necessarily turning it right in on ourselves. We're not just sitting on the counselor's couch. You see what I'm saying? Um, <clears throat> So it's not just Iron Man, it's Tony Stark. And I'm not talking about like self-absorbed narcissist Tony Stark. I'm talking about family man, Avengers in-game Tony Stark. Like, I love you 3,000 Tony Stark. Like, that's, that's my boy, okay? Um, it's not just Iron Man. It's not just this Avenger. It's this guy who had his, lost his parents way too early in life, tragically so, did not end on good terms with his dad. There was, a, there was a relational fracture between him and his father. And out of that pain, 
out of that lack of significance, out of that lack of felt significance from his father, he's going and he's producing, he's achieving, he's generating all of this, all of these goods, all of this technology, all of this stuff for the betterment of humanity because he lacks that in himself. He doesn't feel that in himself. And there's this beautiful line uh, in Endgame where his wife asks him, uh, if he doesn't go out and, and continue to help, if he doesn't go rescue and come to, the, you know, come to save the day, would he ever be able to rest? That's a really powerful line. Like, would you ever be able, you don't have that significance. Would you ever be able to find that significance if you don't go, right? And so those, like that tension, it's a very human tension that we feel as well, right? And we come to understand the why behind why this individual superhero as he is does the things that he does. We do it, you know, in our, in our work a day, nine to five, he does it with jetpacks and nanotechnology, okay? So that's a little different, right? Well, we can think about it, but but that's what I want to address. I think Nehemiah, in the same, in a same way, similar way, if we come to understand Nehemiah's why, some of his background, some of the ways that he is thinking about this task, this project in front of him that God has called him to, I think it helps us better read chapter six. Okay. So with all of that being said, and all of my nerdy cards on the table, let's let's pick up in verse one of chapter six of Nehemiah. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sambalat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. By the way, that was about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I cannot come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sambalot's servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. We'll come to what it said in just a second, but I want to talk about this. First of all, notice it says no gaps remained. Okay, so we're, we're told, we're actually told implicitly if we're reading Nehemiah really closely that this is a repetition. This is an echo. This is in, in literary terms, we call this a chiasm. This is a reflection of something previously. Back in chapter two, you guys remember when, you may remember when Nehemiah was surveying Jerusalem, he goes to his friend, he goes to his fellow Israelites and says, hey, the wall is in ruins, even the gates, even the gates are in ruins. The gates have been destroyed by fire, so let's rebuild. Now in chapter six, we've got this statement, no gaps remain in the wall. The only thing we haven't done is hung the doors. Okay, so all right, all right, wait a minute. So now we're thinking project was not complete at all. Now project is getting pretty darn close, right? So there's gonna be a little bit of a reflection. I wanna keep an eye on that. And I don't want us to be tripped up by the phrase, I realized in the NLT and then some other translations say, I discerned or I realized that they were plotting to harm me. We shouldn't ask questions like, or we don't need to ask questions like, hey, was this like the Holy Spirit giving him this word? Does he receive, like, does an angel come to him in a dream or a vision? 
Because these guys have been around since chapter two. We get introduced to Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem very early on. They have consistently been opposed to the work of rebuilding the wall. This would be the equivalent of you and I saying, hey, I realized that the man in the hockey mask and the bloody machete ringing my doorbell, you know, on my ring camera at 3 a.m., I realized that he was doing me harm, right? This is not, you know, this isn't rocket science is what is what I'm saying, okay? He knows that they mean him no good. He knows that they've been consistently opposed to the work. This is, this is a trap, okay? So don't get tripped up by that phrase, And we know that he discerns this. We know he's utilizing God-given, Holy Spirit-directed wisdom, discernment because of the way he responds. Look, he just says, hey, I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come, right? He He doesn't lose his hat over this, but he does, he's shrewd also, okay? He responds, and actually ESV and NIV, it says he sends messengers, plural, he sends a company to respond and says, hey, we're, we're doing something real important over here. The Lord has us as something real important over here, so we can't come, okay? If he sends one messenger, it's very possible that they just kill that guy and they control the narrative with the surrounding culture. Right? He sends, he protects not only the mission, but actually even the human being that's returning that letter to his, to his enemies, okay? So he's very shrewd. But he's also very harmless. Like this reminds me of Jesus's words in Matthew 10, 16, be as shrewd as snakes, be as wise as serpents, be as innocent as doves, as harmless as doves. So it's very savvy of Nehemiah to protect his own people, to send them in a posse, to send them in a group to say, hey, let's go back and let's just say, we don't have time for this, okay? We've got work to be done, but it's also harmless, Okay, he could have he could have put them on blast. He could have like, you know, sent them back armed or he could have, you know, just stayed, you know, uh, declared war. He could have gone full like King James version, like may the Lord God almighty smite you with his wrath, you know, like not wrath with an A, but like wrath, you know, W-R-O-T-H. And just, you know, just so more enmity and hatred. He doesn't do that. He says, I, got to, I haven't got time for this. I need you to, I, I need to keep to the work, okay? So he sets himself, he disregards the opposition. He disregards the distraction. Verse five tells us, that Sambalot's final message comes in an open letter. And that is important. It's very important because most of the time in this, in this time period, a letter would have been sent sealed only to be read by its recipient. This is an open letter. Sambalot wants everyone that this letter comes across to read this, to check it out, to see what he is saying to Nehemiah, okay? This, we have an equivalent of this. This is the Facebook rant about you that has you at and this person in the comments, right? Like your name at, I want everybody to know how angry I am at Ben Kubitschek, okay? Sorry, Ben. Uh, you're doing a fine job. I don't know why they did that to you. Um, that, that's, this, is the, this is the work email that has your, that's written to your boss or that's written to you, CC'd to your boss. 
CC'd to your whole department, CC'd to the mail room. They just want everybody to know. This is not BCC, this is CC. They want you to know how angry they are at you and they want everybody else to know what a goofy job you did, right? This is just like open disrespect, disregard, attempting to discredit Nehemiah and his mission. And he stays above it. He says, nothing you have written is true. You have made up this entire thing, okay? Nehemiah can face all of his present opposition because he remembers the past provision of God. He can face his present opposition because he remembers the past provision of God. It was only a few months ago, only a few years ago that he was a cupbearer to the king in Assyria. And now, not only is he back in Jerusalem, but they are almost done with this project of restoring the dignity and the honor of the city of God. And we're going to talk about the significance of that in just a second. But he has seen God work. In fact, again, in chapter two, it's a repetition. He tells them, I told them about the gracious hand of God and how it had been upon me and about my conversation with the king. So he knows that God's good hand has been on him throughout this process. And that allows him to push forward, to set aside the distraction and the opposition because he trusts in the ongoing favor of God on his project and on his life. You guys tracking with me on this? What is it that gives him that kind of peace? Because there's still no guarantees, right? Let's keep reading. Verse six through nine. This is what the letter said. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations and Geshem tells me it is true that you and the Jews are planning to rebel and that is why you are building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there is a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You are making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. So now if Sambalot knows that he can't kill Nehemiah, right? That was the invitation out to the plane of Ono. Hey, hey, come see us. We have a, a tire iron that we wanted to give you in your head, right? Um, this, this is, if he can't kill him, out in a field in the middle of nowhere and bury the evidence, then now he's going to just discredit him. Hey, we've heard that you want to be king. We heard that you are a rival now to King Artaxerxes. Wasn't he the one that sent you here? You might want to be careful about how that information could get back to him, don't you think? Attempt to discredit Nehemiah This project has already been stopped once back in in Ezra. Now we're almost done. Now they're trying to stop it again, right? Now, Sambalot knows the Jewish customs. He knows their hopes, their aspirations. He's their across-the-street neighbor, right? The prophets speak often 
of what happens when Jerusalem is rebuilt. When God, when Yahweh gathers his people together, there's a lot of implications for what that's going to mean. And we're going to read a couple of passages. And the irony, this is going to be a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity, not only for Israel, but for all the surrounding nations. Sambalat doesn't want any, any part of that, okay? But I want to look at a couple of those promises. You can turn in your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen. You can turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at two passages in Isaiah. Read with me 2, 1 through 5. Uh, two through five. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above all the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths for the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. He will mediate between the nations, will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. That sounds like a pretty good deal. And what we need to understand is that Nehemiah's why, what compels him to pursue this building project, this restoring of the dignity and the honor of Jerusalem, is he believes that this is coming. He believes that this is possible in his lifetime for the Messiah to return, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, for everything, for the Lord to come and for all of this to be restored. These expectations, the, there's a reason that the Jewish people are constantly in looking for messianic figures for hundreds of years leading up to Jesus and a hundred years after Jesus is they fully anticipate that this is possible, imminently possible, Right, So Nehemiah is seeing this building project and he's going, we're there, we're home free, we're on the doorstep. I cannot bother with you, guy, because this is the coming of the kingdom of God. This is, this is it, okay? He doesn't want to be king. He wants God to be king. He wants God to be God on God's terms, okay? This is a good thing. This is a positive, right? And in fact, it's not just, I, I actually would argue that it's not just the, the corporate dimension of this. It may even be that this is personal for Nehemiah. Um, some scholars believe that as the cupbearer to the king, that Nehemiah, because he would have had access to all of the king of Assyria's wives and concubines and family and relatives, female relatives, he might have more than likely, been a eunuch, Nehemiah. You don't hear that very often. But that's very, very likely the case. And in Isaiah 56, there is this promise amidst the promises of New Jerusalem. It says, don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, uh, 56 verse 3, don't let them say the Lord will never let me be part of his people. And don't let the eunuchs say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy 
and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Does that sound familiar? For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. So I want to be careful. I don't want to hang too much on this idea because we don't really know for certain, but whether it is, uh, whether Nehemiah experiences the trauma of that past event and the fact of being unclean in the temple of God, unclean according to the ceremonial law, unable to worship in the temple, or whether it is just the pain of a life lived in exile, in slavery. He wants to return to his home city, to his homeland, to the promised land on a visceral level. So it shouldn't surprise us that God chooses his deepest hurt, some of, some of the darkest parts of his past, and invites him to serve out of those, to leverage those for the healing and restoration of others. Nehemiah maintains this kind of focus when he recognizes who the true king really is. He maintains his focus when he recognizes who the true king of Israel really is. Sambalot, you know, there's a grain of truth in what in this open letter that he writes in an attempt to discredit Nehemiah. There will be a king in Judah, but it's not Nehemiah. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord God. That's what he wants to see happen. That's what he wants to see come to fruition. Just a very small grain of truth has nothing to do with Nehemiah's plan to be king. That, that actually doesn't exist. So if he has no interest in being king, he's got this deep abiding desire to see Yahweh be king over a restored Israel. How does this thing close out? Let's turn into verse 10. Later, I went, went to visit Shemaiah, son of Deliah, and grandson of Mehethabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. But I replied, should someone in my, uh, in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized, there's that realized again, that God had not spoken to him but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then he would be able to accuse and discredit me. Remember, oh my God, all the evil things that Tobiah and Sambalot have done. And remember Noadiah, the prophet, and all the prophets like her who have tried to intimidate me. This ends on a strange, strange note. We start to see the corruption 
and the opposition come internally. Now, remember in chapter five, Nehemiah had some very strict uh, responses, very intense responses to those that were exacting um, interest from the poor among them, right? And so there's probably a cross-section of Israel now, of Jerusalem now that says, hey, this guy's a little too much. Uh, maybe we don't need this guy in charge. Maybe this is not the way thing, we, we want things to go down, right? And so there are those inside that have now been kind of flipped, I guess you might say, by this external opposition. Now there's opposition internally. So there's a priest that says, hey, let's go into the temple of God. Hey, you come here, come here. I'll bolt the door for you. We can keep you safe in here. And because of the, the imagery, the reference to the bolting of the doors, it's, it's probable that what he's saying is let's come into the holy place. Let's come into the holy of holies. Don't worry, you'll be safe in here. I'll keep you safe. And Nehemiah, whether he's uh, whether he really is ritually, ceremonially unclean as a eunuch or whether it's just the fact that he's not a priest, he doesn't belong in there. That's not his spot. And so he says, wait a minute, <clears throat> you're, a, you're a priest. You should not be suggesting this to me. I don't trust you, okay? This is a realization, not because of any kind of like bolt, you know, the heavens didn't part and tell me. He's just saying, this is not my place. This is not my role in God's mission to restore, to restore, to restore, um, to restore Israel. That would, if I did that, it would not only discredit me, it would discredit the temple. This is a big deal. I won't, I'm not going to do that. Should someone in my position do? No. So I'm going to set that aside. And I can, I think we can be put off by his prayer to God, like, hey, remember all of the wickedness that they did. Judge them accordingly, right? Like that, that might not be the first thing that you and I pray. And I understand that. It can be, it can seem off-putting to us to pray that kind of sort of vindication um, for, for God to come through for us on that. But I want us to, you know, be gentle on that and to recognize what he doesn't do. He doesn't respond directly to them, right? He doesn't seek that vindication for himself. He leaves it up to God. He's honest about how he feels about these, these, these enemies, these wicked intentions against his, the mission against him. He's honest with God about them, but he leaves it to God as well. He requests vindication from God rather than getting it for himself. And so what I want us to see is that he's content to get his significance and his security from God alone rather than trying to gain, to, to grasp that significance and that security for himself. He entrusts himself to God. And in this way, <clears throat> I want to suggest that he really is a, an example of good, godly leadership, okay? He is an example, a type of, a precursor of Jesus himself. Jesus, when he knew that the hour had come, he handed himself over freely to his enemies. He said, hey, this is what I have come to do. The Son of Man has come to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Jesus did not try to grasp uh, 
significance and security for himself. He entrusted himself to his father. All right, so I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm not a huge fan of the like leadership lessons from the book of Nehemiah kind of line of thinking because Nehemiah was not written by John Maxwell. It was not written by Simon Sinek. You know, it was written by an Israelite over 2,000 years ago who was back from exile. And by the time we get to chapter 13, we're actually going to realize that by the, he was actually crushed by the eventual failure of this project to transform the hearts of God's people and to bring about the Messianic age. Like, spoiler alert, chapter 13 is a real bummer. In fact, there are several real bummers around the, along the way. Just go back to chapter 2. Remember, remember the picture that's painted. New Jerusalem is a place where the Messiah reigns, where Yahweh reigns, and where all the nations are pouring in to learn the ways of God, the wisdom of God. And there's unity and there's peace and there's flourishing and it's awesome. Look at chapter two, verse 20. Nehemiah tells his opponents, I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We as servants will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. There's an othering, there's a cutting off, there's a, wait a minute, Nehemiah. This was supposed to be good for all nations, right? So there's some downers along the way. Nehemiah is not this shining, gleaming example of leadership for us. He, like us, like Tony Stark, like everybody else ever in human history before or since us, is, except for Jesus, is deeply flawed, is a mixed bag of success and failure, is prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, right? Like it's, we're not always going to get it right. So we're not reading Nehemiah as, uh, hey, how to, how to really gain momentum in your, in your capital campaign project, you know? We're not reading Nehemiah as how to win friends and influence people. We're reading Nehemiah as the plan of God to restore his people. And surprise, surprise, Nehemiah is not the one that's gonna accomplish this, Right? But at the same time, there is some overlap. He does get some things right here. And I want to, I, I come to praise the, that thing. He focuses in on his why. Why does he, why is he building this wall? He's building this wall because he believes that a new Jerusalem, a restored creation where Yahweh reigns over all the earth is the best possible world that we could be living in. And so the, well, then what am I, you know, where is this headed? Where, what am I going to do about it? He has a great deal of clarity in that. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to build this wall. This is my, this is my task in front of me, right? He stays focused on that. He sets aside the distractions. He sets aside the, uh, the opposition because he sees that goal ahead. And again, in that respect, he is a precursor, a type of Jesus. Jesus is a better Nehemiah. 
because Jesus is in, in dying, in overcoming sin and death, does offer the transformation of our hearts, the renewal of his people, the restoration eventually of all of creation. And in fact, we know that the pathway to that for Jesus was suffering. And so if we are going to pick that up, the mission of Jesus, if our why we do this is so that we might see Jesus bring his kingdom to bear in our life and the lives of those around us, we know that that is going to involve self-sacrificial, self-effacing love for those around us. That's, that's hard. So I think about this in the context of community groups, like in my own ministry. Why do community groups exist? What is our purpose, right? I, you guys have heard me say before, probably maybe, I, I'm not a huge fan of mission statements generally because most of them I don't think actually like mean, we don't actually do the things that we say we're about in those mission statements. But our mission statement as community groups is to help one another to grow, to turn our attention to God through scripture, through prayer, and through shared relationship. What has God done throughout history in the lives of his people? What is God doing in my life as I turn my attention to him in prayer? And what is he doing in the lives of those around me, whether that's inside my group, inside our neighborhood, in those uh, with whom I share, you know, a cubicle or, you know, that are right across from me at work or whatever, the checkout person at the grocery store. What is God doing in my life? Why do I exist to turn my attention to him in all of my experiences, to invite others to do that because I am convinced that God is always working if I will but listen, okay? That motivates me. How are we going to accomplish that? What's the like, where, where are we going with that? I think community groups, you know, can have a little play in the joint on how that's accomplished. And I trust implicitly all of our leaders and all of our members that are shaping that vision within the context of their group. But that why, what do you want God? What, what is it that God is doing in our lives? He is about the business of expanding his kingdom. And he wants to use your past experiences, your skills, your giftings to do that. Will we turn our attention to him? And ask, what do you want to accomplish through us, Jesus? Nehemiah is not a perfect leader and neither are you and I. And that should not come to us as a surprise. We don't read Nehemiah for good leadership principles. We read it to remind ourselves of the God who returns his people from exile to center us on why it is that we are following him with everything that we have to the best of our abilities. So I'd invite you to think anew on why that is for you and to invite the Spirit, invite Jesus to give you clarity and courage to pursue that with all of your being. Let's pray.
Jesus, I'm grateful in the words of, uh, in, in these verses in chapter six, in the words of Nehemiah through the life of Nehemiah that I see that you are a God who restores your people. You do it, Jesus. We are but beholders and onlookers into the work that you are doing. So would you help us just to remember your faithfulness, to recognize you as the true King, Jesus, to set aside the distractions, to ask for you to be the one that vindicates us, uh, exonerates us. And would you give us clarity this week on what it is that you would have us to do with our experiences, with our skills, with who you've made us to be. Give us a clear, a clear picture of that, Jesus. We love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.